Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. Yay. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Hey, this is Josh Holt from University of Iowa Children's Hospital. This is Craig Lauer from the University of North Carolina. And this is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. So the first thing on our docket today is the fact that in the coming months, we are going to be changing our format and also the name of the podcast. We are going to shift from just covering recent JPO articles to searching the literature out there for you and bringing you the newest articles, regardless of what journal they come from, as long as they are about pediatric orthopedics. So we look forward to uh, broadening our horizons a little bit. And as we are in the process of trying to think of just the right catchy new name, we would love to have any input from the audience if anyone has a suggestion for the new name of the podcast as we move away from the JPO podcast. And as always, you can reach us at pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. Ooh. Yeah, it cannot contain the word COVID or Trump. Yeah. And how do you or, feel or about Biden, the word? Or Biden, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about the word PD pod? I mean, it seems so obvious because it's a podcast, but Nick Fletcher's kind of done it already. Yeah, I mean, I think it is pretty obvious, but that also helps people remember it. So I don't have a problem with it. We just need someone out there more creative than us to uh, to come through. Yeah. Help us out, world. We're counting on you all. Next up, second on the docket, is the fact that uh, we've had a big week, and I want to congratulate all of my co-hosts, as well as myself, I suppose, as being new diplomats of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons. Oh, yeah. Or I'll congratulate you so you don't have to congratulate yourself. Thank you. I felt kind of awkward. And (laughs) in that vein, I want to introduce a new segment where we are going to, when time allows, start discussing some random cases and get each other's input. And now that we're all officially board certified, I think we're qualified to do that. So in, I think, proper fashion, I passed the boards on Monday, so then I did something weird on Tuesday, so I'd like to get everyone's thoughts. And I've sort of uh, talked to you guys about this idea before, but I've got the philosophy that we sometimes over-treat tibial fractures when we operate on them. And so we had a tibial shaft fracture, it got casted, loss reduction after a week, well over a centimeter short. So we took it to the OR and it didn't move very well closed. Uh, There's a lot of stuff interposed. So we made a small incision, opened it, reduced it anatomically, and then just put a couple K wires across it and put it in a long leg cast, sort of right there in the middle of the diaphysis, which is clearly oh, not the, the textbook. The patient was 11. Three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, it's not that stable, but I think the cast is going to do the trick. And then we're going to go back and take out the implants at four weeks, maybe transition to a patellar tendon bearing cast. So I guess my question for you, ABOS diplomats, is is that crazy? Should I edit out this segment? <laughs> did you uh, bury the pins or did you leave them out? I left them out. Yeah. So I, my partner had one that she did that exact same thing and it lost reduction after a week. So she had to take it back and plate it anyway. And then, unfortunately, it got infected. It was really sort of a bad story. Um, so then not to scare you, um, I don't think there's a right answer for tibia fractures. And I've swung from being really conservative to really aggressive. So I do a lot of rigid nails, even for younger patients, as long as the apophysis is ossified. But I also don't think that fixation, as long as it's stable fixation, in any way is bad. Julia, do you mean as long as the apophysis is ossified or if it's, like, fused? It just has ossified. to have some bone? Yeah. Not doesn't have to be fused, just ossified. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, Carter, I don't know. I mean, I, you hear, I think Peds Orthopedics started as the term pins and plaster, right? I mean, before we had all this fancy stuff, it was get it close, pin it, and then put it in plaster. It's like pins augment your cast. So I don't think it sounds crazy to me if you thought that was going to hold it. And I mean, you don't have to deal with this retained hardware later. I've seen some crazy tibia fractures where they're like these long spiral obliques where I think we all saw these in fellowship where they were treated with like three lag screws across the thing because the plate's deemed to be just a little more than you need. And if you can supplement a kid in a cast because you don't care as much about the early motion, which we always do, then um, I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. Well, we'll see. I might keep doing it until I get that uh, that infection that Julia mentioned. <laughs> but, you know, I guess we pin elbows, and a septic elbow from a pin site infection is a lot worse than a tibial shaft infection. Yeah, hopefully they, they both turn out to be pretty rare. All right, and if you were going to do those, like, three lag screws or just a little plate, are you guys routinely taking that out because you don't want that stress riser in there? Or is anyone going to leave that in permanently in a 10-year-old kid? For me, I oftentimes try and scoot the plate over lateral and put it under the anterior compartment. That way it's not proud right on that medial border of the tibia. And if I do that, and I use about the age of 10 or 11, and I've left several of those in because kids can't feel them, they're not prominent, they don't cause any troubles. I would probably just leave three lag screws because it's not periarticular. And I feel like screws, although I've been proven wrong on this before, but they're not exponentially harder to take out the way longer they're in. Like if you fracture around them, you can probably dig them out somehow versus like plates and bigger implants. I think they're more problematic if there's a complication. Yeah, agreed. Leave in screws and take out a plate. I like it. Well, I would definitely take out the K wires, Carter. <laughs> Particularly if they're out of the skin. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> they're there for me to take out and they haven't backed out all the way already. All right, so next up, we're going to try a, another addition to the podcast, a new uh, rapid fire or lightning round where we're going to try to bring you some very concise information from recent studies without going into as much detail as usual. So we're going to go through some studies that ask pretty simple questions and just give you the answer. First up from this month's JPO out of TSRH is a study named Is Proximal Fibula Epiphysiodesis Necessary When Performing a Proximal Tibial Epiphysiodesis? I've never done a proximal fibular epiphysiodesis during the tibial epiphysiodesis. Have you guys? I never have. I have seen, not me personally, but I have seen varus and prominent fibular heads form, particularly in the amputee population if they have like a fusion down below. But I think the same principle applies if your proximal tibia is stopped and the proximal fibula has not, if they have a lot of growth remaining. So I would say at a young age, it probably matters a lot. Yes, you nailed it. So TSRH tells us that if there is less than two years of growth remaining, you don't have to do it. If there's more than two years of growth remaining, you should think about it. Or if they just happen to have a particularly prominent fibular head, you should probably think about it. All right, In two next- years, though, that seems pretty close. Like, I'm, I guess I'm surprised that it's not more. I mean, every 14-year-old boy should have a fibula closed, if, assuming they're growing until 16. Seems old to me. Yeah, hopefully I've gotten away with it so far or just haven't noticed that I didn't. <laughs> um, all right, next up, a Clubfoot article. This one is out of Canada, and it is entitled Treatment of Clubfoot, Stockinette versus Webral Cast Padding in the Ponsetti Method. And we need a drum roll uh, sound clip here. They found that whether you do stockinette or Webral, it makes no difference. Both groups had some minor skin problems, so I always love research that tells me I can do whatever I feel like. Um, Josh, from the Ponsetti capital of the world in Iowa, what, what do you guys do? Soft roll. Soft roll. Yeah, and it's got to be the real, the real cotton, the nice stuff, if you can have it. You know, I've traveled a 
been around the world a few couple places with Dr. Morquende and people use what they can get. People use what they can afford. And for the most part, things work out okay. But certainly if you have the option to use the true cotton padding, you really shouldn't have many skin complications. So Josh, when you say soft roll, I um, mistakenly think that that is the, like the softer fiberglass stuff. Yeah, Some people use that for fiberglass. Yeah, no, it's the, the web roll, just the true cotton. And I just want to record a sound clip of someone from Iowa saying that they're going to use soft roll in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we can get that out of context. We can do a deep fake <laughs> on that one for sure. Josh, is everyone getting plaster a la Ponsetti yes. in Iowa? Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Let the record reflect. All right. Um, next up, we've got a CP paper with the lead author on the line with us right now, Dr. Craig Lauer, diplomat of the ABOS. It's entitled Comparison of Staged Versus Same-Day Bilateral Hip Surgery in Non-Ambulatory CP Patients. Craig, you want to tell us what the answer is? Should we do both hips on the same day or should we stage them? I'm a same-dayer, but we had a non-same-dayers on the article as well. So the evidence would say that they're both actually reasonably safe high degree of complications that are low-grade complications, but severe complications like death or major organ function um, didn't happen. And the type 3 complications like return of the ORs, actually that did favor a bilateral, do it all in the same day approach. You know, you can argue whether that's the biggest deal or not. So, So I think you're able to choose as you like Carter either way, but this would slightly hint towards doing them together. Nice. I like to do them together, but we'll see how I feel after 15 years in practice. Yeah, I think it's a huge benefit to be at a place like Rady where you're doing it with a fellow almost every time. Certainly would do them both. If you're there with the intern, and it makes it a little different if you're doing the whole thing and then closing the whole side before you'd really transition to the second side. Spoken like a uh, junior attending who doesn't routinely have a fellow in the OR with them. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think what you really don't want to do is draw a conclusion that bilateral is absolutely safer because I think, as Josh pointed out, it really depends on the situation. So, you know, recognize that the data in that study shows that, but depending on your situation, it may not be the same. Like you got to do what you think is best for the patient. If things don't line up that way, then stage it. Families tend to have a pretty strong preference about that too. I feel like a lot of them feel like they don't want that much all at once. Other people really feel strongly that they just want one hospitalization. You know, if they live four hours away from the hospital, they may not want to come back again if they can help it. So family preference has a lot to do with it. I know they're talking a lot about staged or unstaged in the hip preservation world right now too. So I think this topic isn't necessarily just about CP, you know, but whether we should do big stage surgeries or big separate surgeries. If I can just interject one more thing, we may not want to talk about this forever, but the thing that I thought was really interesting when we got into the data on that was, um, well, it's obviously a population that is has a lot more medical comorbidities and it's maybe more at risk. But looking at which stage, like if you did stage them after point A or point B, all the complications happened after that second surgery. So it's like you're taking a patient that just had surgery, you know, whether it was three weeks ago or six weeks ago or three months ago, they're still somewhat debilitated and physiologically not 100%. And I kind of think that plays a role that you take them back to do the second hit sort of thing and their odds are just increased. And then you can't discount the fact that it's two anesthesias, potentially two spikic gas, you know, it's just double of everything. So if you can get them through the big procedure, doing everything all at once um, without a major hemodynamic complication, then I think you're probably going to be better off. You've showed your hand despite being very diplomatic at first. <laughs> all right, next up, an article 
with authors from all over the place, uh, Seattle, Chicago, Vanderbilt, DuPont, Sacramento, what should I wear to clinic? A survey of pediatric orthopedic patients and parents. So what do your patients and parents think you should be wearing to clinic? So first, let's go around and all say what we wear to clinic. I wear uh, a shirt and tie, a dress shirt and tie, but no jacket over it usually. What about a white coat? I usually do not. If I'm like in a hurry or slacking, then I'll wear, if I wear scrubs, I'll wear a white coat over it. Yeah, so I was a shirt and tie with no white coat. And then with COVID and just trying to not spread or contaminate or do anything, now I'm scrubs only, no white coat, just scrubs. Yeah, I've done that same thing. Well, I don't wear a tie, but clinic clothes, nice clothes, dress clothes. And then, uh, but since then, I've switched to mostly scrubs and no white coat ever. So I was wearing shirt and no tie, no tie because of the, um, uh, just because of the germs, potential. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. <laughs> I hate them so much. I just can't even say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I do often wear a white coat because um, I feel like half of my job is telling parents that their kid is normal. And also, I don't have enough gray hairs for them to take me seriously when I say that, when they have a real concern. And the white coat honestly helps me. I think this, I think this thing backs me up on that. All right. So the, the answer is that most people don't mind scrubs, and there's a slight preference for a white coat, whether it's over scrubs or business attire. Some side findings, female patients and their parents prefer female surgeons, and uh, this was basically the opposite of what I do based on my, uh, my training. Training was business attire and never wear a white coat around kids. So, uh, whoops. All right, next up, study out of Boston Children's and CHOP and Mercy in Kansas. Um, so the question is, why irrigate for the same contamination rate? Wound contamination in pediatric spinal surgery using betadine versus saline and... You know, sort of sounds like the flow study. They basically found no difference. You can irrigate with betadine. You can irrigate with saline after your spine surgery. Either way, there's still going to be a lot of contamination if you culture the wound. And either way, you're going to have a pretty low infection rate. I don't do spines, but I don't put anything in my irrigation for anything. What are you guys doing? Regular H2O, but in a high-powered Pulsivac. I was going to point out, Carter, that Kansas City is actually Missouri. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we just lost half of our Midwestern viewership. <laughs> I'm bringing them back. I'm trying to bring them back. Dislike. <laughs> no um, evidence. Uh, I, I basically followed my senior partners out and do Irisept, which is like a dilute chlorhexidine, and then rinse out the re- rinse all that out with saline. So I do evidence-free irrigation. Yeah, saline only. No, no need to add a bunch of other stuff. Craig, just not to be picky, but do you really irrigate with water? Sorry, no, saline. Okay, I was like... Oh. Just in case there's a tumor. You <laughs> Listen, you can lice the bacteria and your muscle cells. It's great. Love it. All right, next up, we're going back to TSRH. This study is called Successful Ponsetti-Treated Club Feet at Age 2. What is the rate of surgical intervention after this? So let's pull the audience. You've got a successful Ponsetti case. They're two years old. They're looking awesome. What's the rate that they're going to need another surgery? I'm going to say... 35%. That is disgusting that you got it right like that. The answer is 35%. Spot on. Spot on. That literally, for all the audience out there, that was a completely blind answer. I mean, yeah. It's I'm, like, a little, I'm a little, yeah, I mean, I, I have a little knowledge of the topic, though. So. 
Yeah, you're inundated with clubfoot knowledge. You could you could just like speak. Yeah. Carter, I was gonna I, guess ten. So that's higher than I anticipated. I don't know what this study looked at, but I would tell you the the problem is is that a lot of people just jump to surgery for for relapse instead of going back to casting, going back to boots and bars and kind of starting over again. So that's the that's the plague of mostly America. Other other countries don't have the same high rate of surgical intervention at a later age. I mean, it's probably um, center dependent, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think it's very surgeon dependent. All right, next up, we've got a study out of uh, Boston Children's and CHOP. Growth disturbance following intraarticular distal radius fractures in the skeletally immature patient. So these are intraarticular, so all Salter-Harris 3s and Salter-Harris 4s. What do you guys think was the rate of growth disturbance after that for the distal radius? 20%. This is Craig. I'm going to say 35% because Josh got it right <laughs> last time. Sorry. Yeah, I would say, and I don't know this study, if they did a CT or did stuff like that, it's probably higher than 50%, but clinically significant is probably 20%. They found 43%. And Josh, if you had gotten that right, I was going to edit out your last answer because I would have known you were cheating. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would have thought it was over 50% too. I, I've been surprised in my uh, practice over two years. I've seen a few growth arrests just from Salter Harris ones and twos. So if you just look at threes and fours, I would think it'd be pretty high. I feel like I didn't see a lot of that during training, but yet somehow I'm seeing a lot more of that in real life. And I don't know if that's just, I didn't pay attention to it or it just didn't cross my path, but that's been an interesting thing for me. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Next up out of Loyola in Chicago, studies called coronal remodeling potential of pediatric distal radius fractures. So does anyone want to guess if you have a coronally angulated distal radius fracture, how many degrees per year do you think that's going to make up as the kid grows? I'm going to say just as many as a sagittal plane, but I've read this study already. (laughs) I'm going to say two degrees a year. I would guess four. So it is two degrees a month. So 24 degrees a year. So they found tons of remodeling. So their conclusion was, unless it looks horrible, don't take a second reduction attempt. Just let it straighten itself out so you don't, you know, bugger up the physis. And that's for coronal and sagittal plane? That's for coronal specifically. But yeah, the sagittal also. I can't remember, Craig, did it it correct even better or the exact same? It's, It's essentially the same as like historically what we thought in the sagittal plane. So this whole thing of being in line with the the joint motion is either been overblown or just not true for the distal radius. So, I mean, this is all kind of pointing to this new movement of maybe we do way too many sedated reductions when a non-sedated molding of a cast and you just line up the distal fragments, even if there's some bayonetting and it's not perfect, like that seems to do pretty well. So I don't know. I'm doing a lot less, I, haven't, I don't think I've operated on a distal radius unless it's been a polytrauma in over a year. Well, I've had a few, but they've all been almost skeletally mature. All right, our last uh, article of the lightning round is entitled The Frequency of Mediastinal Injury in Acute Posterior Sternoclavicular Dislocations, a Multicenter Study. Um, so a bunch of centers, including uh, CHOP, Boston Children's, uh, Mercy in Kansas City, Missouri, at the Campbell nice. Clinic. University of South Alabama, and they put together a series, kind of amazingly, of 125 posterior sternoclavicular dislocations. Over 125 years. That'll never be done again. (laughs) 
Congratulations. They come in waves. I've done five this year. I took care of cousins. Cousins who had them. Wow. So this was over 15 years, 125. Maybe even more amazingly, 90% were treated with ORIF. By fixation, they mean sutures? Probably. Uh, Hopefully not K-wires. Yeah. (laughs) They actually didn't say... I assume it was all suture. Maybe there were some differences between the different centers. What, what do they mean by mediastinal injury? I mean, because that, that's so vague. It doesn't actually matter. So they mean I, like actual damage to a, a major blood vessel. Do they include clots in that, though? No. Because I have, so I had one kid that had a, had a massive clot. Wow. From compression. Um, in what, what vessel? Um... According to this study, 50% chance there was compression of the brachiocephalic vein. Uh, yeah, that's what it was. Brachiocephalic. Hmm. Yeah. That was the so then they, they have a stroke then? They could if you dislodged it. I see. So, so, that, they, so that was they caught it. Terrifying. Well, it wouldn't really be a stroke. Yeah, probably go to It wouldn't be a stroke. Well, it could be an arm, I guess. It could go to the arm. Well, it's going back to the it heart. It should go back to the right? heart. And oh, it's in the vein. We need yeah. I thought, yeah. I thought you were talking artery. Venus. Got it. No, no, no. Yeah. Venus clot. Yes. <laughs> Maybe so. we should have a real doctor on this call. <laughs> we should call the real doctor. This kid had a huge clot, so he was on DVT prophylactic or, you know, anticoagulation for three months after. Um, but that's the only one that I've seen that's had any kind of anything. So I bet the rate of, is one less than 1%. That's a great, yeah, they found zero. They had zero yeah. things that they described as a vascular or mediastinal injury. So a and scary thing, but they concluded you can you can take care of these pretty safely. And did they conclude, you know, we've always been taught to have a cardiac surgeon waiting outside the room. Right. Did, are probably, they saying you don't need to do that? Because that'd be, that'd be a heck of a conclusion that would save a lot of resources, but it's, I think, kind of risky to say that. Yeah, they did not go so far as to say that. I think they were thinking exactly what you just said, and they basically concluded these injuries are very rare. It's very unlikely something terrible is going to happen, but if it did, it would be catastrophic. So keep that in mind and make whatever decision you think is best. I always call mine and have him come by, and he sits in the corner, and then I say, okay, you're good. And and he said, even if I'm in the corner, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do. What, are you going to cross-clamp the aorta? Basically, that's the only hope you have. So not that anybody's not going to have somebody there, though. Craig, now you know that the brachiocephalic vein goes back to the heart. Perfect. Where'd you go go to medical school? (laughs) (laughs) Bones, 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 bones. Did you say vein? I'm just, I'm going to challenge that. Don't rewind the tape, but I'm going to challenge that she said vein. I did not. I said there was a clot. I I did not specify. I said brachiocephalic vein, but we won't fact check it. (laughs) I really like the lightning round. I think we should we should clarify that we were purposely blinded. <laughs> All right. Um, next up, we are going to uh, switch over to our next segment and go to an author, an interview with uh, Dr. Lauer and one of the authors from this month's episode. This is uh, Craig Lauer from UNC Chapel Hill. I'd like to discuss an article entitled Extramedullary Motorized Lengthening of the Femur in Young Children from lead author Mark Dahl and senior author, uh, senior author Andy Georgiatis both of Gillette Children's Hospital in Minnesota. So we all know that limb lengthening by distraction osteogenesis is achieved both internal fixation devices nowadays using uh, namely motorized uh, magnetized nails, and this mitigates many effects of uh, external fixation. But uh, intramedullary fixation is obviously not uh, possible in younger children where you would have to violate physis or apophysis. 
And so this study uh, reviews early results of a novel use or technique for these nails when used in extramedullary fashion. And I'm lucky enough to be joined on the line with Dr. Mark Dahl, who's the uh, lead author of this study. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Dahl. Well, thanks for having me. It'll be fun to talk to you about it. <laughs> so the, the pictures in the article and, and the appendix are uh, really impressive. Um, and I just want to start off by asking, where did you get this idea uh, to start using these nails as an internal external fixator lengthening device? Well, um, some time ago, uh, I was able to study with and work with Rainer Baumgart, uh, the professor in Munich, who was really the father of motorized internal limb lengthening. And um, in learning to use the fit bone, uh, I was fortunate. It was just John Birch from Dallas and myself were the only two Western Hemisphere users of the fit bone. And um, it was John that got me engaged with Rainer. And uh, as soon as I started using the fit bone, I immediately realized that there was going to be a new generation and a new way to lengthen limbs that was less invasive, uh, more cosmetically appealing, uh, less painful, and more easily tolerated by the patient. And within the first five or 10 fit bone uh, procedures that I performed on adolescents and teenagers, um, for, only for the reason that you talked about that you can't use it in small children, I realized that this new technology was missing a big population of patients that were just sitting at our hospital waiting for a better way to be treated. Right, right. And so I have had the good fortune to create some other medical devices. And so I put pen to paper and, and started drawing up how we would be doing this extramedullary and essentially making a, a motorized lengthening plate. So I pitched it to the Fitbone uh, manufacturer uh, many years ago, almost 15 years ago, I think, hmm. and they uh, were not interested in pursuing it. And then I, uh, in December of 20, uh, 2011, the FDA essentially told John and I that we could no longer import the Fitbone because it was not FDA approved and they gave us authorization to use it on a case-by-case -case basis up to that point. And I got real desperate. Within a month, though, uh, Ellipse Technologies released the precise lengthening nail. And within months of using that, I went to Ellipse and said, make this growing plate for us. And <laughs> they wouldn't do it. <laughs> so uh, they were busy with all the other things that they were developing. And right. so it occurred to me that the straight small nail could be used just like a monolateral external fixator inside the limb rather than outside the limb. Yeah. That you'd have less cantilever bending than you've had with monolateral external fixation because the nail would be closer to the bone. Sure. And that with just some modifications in the screws, you could have fairly stable fixation uh, knowing that you could get some cantilever bending. So I limited the first uh, 15 of these uh, lengthenings to three centimeters to four centimeters. 
And of course, I worked it out on saw bones and then I worked it out in cadavers before I did it in a human and I gave informed consent and I got off-label permission and uh, it was a pretty successful technique. That's, um, I think, incredible insight for the listeners to hear kind of the the way you take an idea and translate it to its new application and then test it out thoroughly. And then obviously this paper is uh, the result of a lot of that hard work and some of the initial results of that technique. Um, we won't get too much into the details, but are these, are these the first patients that had that technique, the ones that are published in this paper? I think it's... Yes, uh, yeah. Okay. Yes, they are. So this is 11 children aged between four and eight. So obviously at an age where intramedullary nails, motorized nails would not be effective or would be uh, contraindicated. And they're all congenital limb differences as most kids who need lengthenings at this age are. They're congenital short femurs, PFFD and fibular hemimelia. And um, you successfully lengthened uh, 2.7 to 4 centimeters total between this group, but it's uh, about 15% of the total femoral length is what it ends up being, so a significant proportion for kids of this size. Um, takes about 6.3 weeks of lengthening, about 13 weeks until their weight bearing is tolerated, and you typically take the nails out around four and a half months, and uh, in about half the cases, plated the femur at the same time. Um, I do want to just highlight kind of the, the difficulties you had, or maybe I'll even let you do that. I mean, the things that you learned as you did more of these cases and um, you know, the problems that came up and how you address them. It'd be uh, great to hear the common complications and, and what you can advise to, to other people. Absolutely. So uh, first of all, I anticipated that we would have a problem with cantilever bending and that the screws that were the locking bolts that were available with the uh, either the fit bone or the precise device were only threaded on the near cortex and therefore those locking bolts would not be sufficient for use at all. And so I, as the device is titanium, of course, I look for titanium screws and um, being in practice as long as I have, I've got boxes full of screws and plates and just started sorting through them. And I found a, a screw that fit the best and it was a five millimeter striker screw that fit many others could have fit it fit the proximal locking bolts well and as you know the precise device is actually three diameters proximal end of the nail is 11 is 10.7 the mid portion of the nail is 8.5 and the telescopic portion or distal end of the nail is 6.5 so that meant that the distal screws were very small Right. So again, I use threaded screws uh, from Stryker uh, to uh, lock the distal end. Initially, I thought that I would it would require blocking screws to prevent proker bottom and reker bottom deformity. So I figured out a way to trap the nail with uh, screws in front of and behind the nail, but. After the first five cases, it became evident I didn't need to do that because I wasn't seeing any proker bottom or reker bottom deformity, but I was seeing varus deformity. And uh, the varus deformities were generally mild, but there were two occasions, excuse me, three occasions that we had to 
do adjustments uh, uh, during the lengthening and, and take the patients back to surgery unexpectedly. The, so the main problem was stability of the construct. The uh, second thing that, uh, that I anticipated was a problem was intolerance of the bulk of the device. Hmm. And in only one patient did uh, was the device a nuisance, but in none of the patients did I have wound problems related to the device. Mm -hmm. The other anticipated problem was that the instability um, could result in uh, poor bone formation. So in addition to having the patients non-weight bearing, I put a hip spike, a splint on them that was removable, but was used full time during the distraction. And we held the knee in extension and the hip in neutral position. Um, so there was that additional external uh, support that we used. The one patient that had a real significant problem developed a knee flexion contracture early on at about two and a half centimeters of length. So. I stopped the lengthening and uh, used a dynamic splint and it didn't recover the knee to full extension. And so the knee was threatening to translate posteriorly and sublux. So I boarded the lengthening at I think two and a half centimeters. And um, only after I did a second distal iliotibial band release was I able to get full extension on that patient. I see. Yeah. So that's a danger with any femoral lengthening in a congenital etiology, and uh, that occurred in that patient, and it only allowed us to get to two and a half, two point seven centimeters. And after eleven patients, we uh, felt that we could go longer, and I went up to four and a half centimeters of length. Um, we were. Pleased that the regenerate was very good in these patients because now we weren't reaming the canal mm -hmm. and we weren't damaging the endosteal blood supply. Yeah. And so we got quite good regenerate. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I just want to say I think that's a great example of anticipating problems that may come up and um, the way showing how you know other surgeons, young surgeons particularly, might be listening to this, showing how to kind of pivot and make adjustments and recognize um, errors and deal with them as they come up. Um, I do want to ask, you know, I found myself kind of troubleshooting this as well and thinking about, you know, what else could you do to prevent the varus from coming and things like that. But I actually think that all may be a moot point because, as you mentioned, um, there is a new technology that's emerging um, to where uh, this extramedullary lengthening can be done via a device that's made more for that purpose. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the lengthening plate and uh, more particularly let us, all of us who are sitting around with patients who have uh, this problem, you know, should we be embarking upon um, trying to do this uh, extramedullary motorized lengthening with, with the nails or should we be holding on and waiting for these plates? Well, um, I'll explain the early results. Uh, the FDA approved uh, the new, now what's called a nuvasive grow plate uh, earlier this year. And the company released use of the plate to five of us that are on the design committee. Uh, that includes John Hertzenberg, Chris Yopst, uh, Sean Standard, 
uh, Andrew Paley and myself. And the idea was that um, before we, before they released it uh, to, for widespread use, we would learn what we could um, to make this as safe as possible for our patients. And we just had a uh, web meeting Thursday night, uh, just five days ago, where we all shared our cases with each other and the early results. So at this point, um, we now have, amongst us, we have just over 30 cases. Oh, wow. Um, I've done three this week uh, in the first two days of this week. And uh, I only did one, one in early October, one in late October, um, and one in November. So now I've done a total of six cases myself. And we don't have complete results on them, so it's really uh, preliminary. Very early, but right. We've noticed uh, a wonderful regenerate. We're doing uh, subperiosteal, periosteal sparing corticotomies. We're each using our own technique, and so we haven't established a, a standard technique. The company has made a total of um, essentially four models. There's a right and a left proximal femur and a right and a left distal femoral uh, lengthener and a right and a left proximal only tibial lengthener, mm -hmm. all of which have a 4.5 millimeter stroke. There's also a diaphyseal or a shaft lengthener that has a 3.5 centimeter maximal stroke. The head of the device is smaller essentially than the lengthening portion of the body. And in order to prevent a deformity in the smaller segment, the femoral um, devices have sort of a kickstand or a home run screw that is an oblique reach screw that gives more sagittal plane stability. Okay. We've uh, each experienced a little bit of uh, varus deformation at the lengthening site. Um, of the three that I have that have lengthened substantially, I've had one premature consolidation uh, that uh, today I, re I revised a new corticotomy and, and he's gonna go on to get his goal successfully. Um, we've had, as I understand it, um, uh, one compartment syndrome and um, there uh, has been one knee subluxation that I saw, um, but the lengthening was aborted so that the knee could recover Sure. So, it, so this early result illustrates, Craig, that any device of limb lengthening is um, subject to potential complications that are common to any form of limb lengthening. Of course. And of course. Stuart Green and I hopefully outlined that in the book that we wrote uh, five years ago on motorized internal limb lengthening. But now we have will be considering this motorized internal lengthening, limb lengthening, rather than motorized intramedullary lengthening. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, should people do the extramedullary nail? 
or wait for the plate. I would strongly suggest that you wait for the plate because it's going to be superior to the to the nail. Okay. If you can't wait, uh, feel free to get get a hold of me about how to do the nail. But I think you should wait because it's going to come pretty soon, and people will be pretty excited about it. I think. Well, that's some uh, fantastic insight and uh, great insider information about you know what's next. Um, <clears throat> The, uh, I think that that's most of what I wanted to cover for us. Um, is there anything else that you'd you know, want to say to the listeners regarding this study or uh, these techniques in particular? Well, I think uh, I just really need to thank uh, Andy George Addis, uh, uh, Sue Novotny, our PhD um, in our research department, Jen Lane, my other partner um, who co-authored the study with me. And yeah, Stuart Morrison. Uh, Stuart was my fellow uh, two years ago from Melbourne, Australia, and he's working at Royal Children's there with with a great group down there. Well, I, I do appreciate um, everything that uh, all, all the uh, work that you've done on this and, and the, what your team has done on this. And thank you for sharing your results with us. And thanks again for being on the podcast tonight. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, Craig. Take care. Cool. Good job, Craig. Yeah, that was a great one. I mean, the group that does that is obviously they're so they're dealing with such complex problems and then they can still think outside of the box, which I think is really neat. And bringing that new technology, obviously, the precise nail has changed a lot of things about how we deal with deformity and leg length discrepancy and angular deformities. And I think the plate will do even more for that expand our age range for those issues so that was really really cool yeah that's a real real game changer changer you heard it here mm-hmm. first on the uh, newly unnamed podcast <laughs> yes what i think is interesting about that is that um you know we see these themes in complex deformity management that there are complications that occur no matter what modality you use and it's just interesting to see that that continues you know those things continue to be things that you need to watch out for and no matter how good we meet we get with technology i think it's sometimes it's it's a little bit dangerous to have these fancy tools that you think might just do it all for you complex deformity patients tend to have complex complications and so I think keeping in mind that even with the new fancy technology, they can still have subluxations and contractures and compartment syndrome um, is really important. Yeah, to me, it highlights the, yeah, yeah, I mean, to me, it highlights that exact point that just because implant for it or there's a surgery for it doesn't mean that everyone should do it and everyone should use it. I think, you know, people who are using new technology and doing these things should be doing it in a controlled way where they're studying, where they're keeping data, where they're learning, where they're going to use that information to, to help other people eventually do it. But I mean, there should be a, there should be a time frame. Same with the tether. You know, I don't think everyone who goes to the two day weekend online course should be able to start tethering spines. I think that even still, we don't know a lot about things like that and doing it in a controlled manner where you're studying it, where you're researching it, you know, like he did with his internal nail, keeping data and really, really scrutinizing what he's doing so that he can then progress and develop better implants. Um, my, my thoughts, I would echo all those points and just say, I, I was impressed with you know, kind of the whole story of bringing it to market. And I, I'm also impressed with the current efforts with the grow plate and how they've left it with the five experienced surgeons kind of troubleshoot and figure out best practices. I think that's a really good model 
for this new technology to address the issues you guys brought up. Talking with uh, Mark Dahl made me feel like a very inadequate uh, <laughs> surgeon. Because, <laughs> I mean, he's kind of got these great ideas. He does all these uh, amazing things. And he's creating this med device. And hey, I, was I can just picture him in his garage <laughs> sorting through buckets of old screws. You totally have this, this view of like that old school surgeon who, um, you know, this sort of thing comes easy to them and uh, all the complications that he, that he anticipated kind of came to be, but he had an answer for them. And I mean, it was just, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's truly what a, an expert surgeon does. And we were talking about his hobbies and he's into he does sculpting and uh, makes bronze busts and metalwork of things. And I was just like, what do I do in my free time? <laughs> I aspire to be that cool. Someday. You know, we're, we're like, we're like the new era of doing podcasts and things. So maybe some people think that's cool, but man, if I could make a bronze bust of um, my co-fellows, for instance, uh, I just think that that would really <laughs> be, be the icing on the cake. I would, I would commission a series from you. <laughs> Well, I just uh, wanted to maybe take this time then to uh, discuss some feedback we got. So obviously, we encourage all our listeners to rate us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, um, and we appreciate those. And if you have any critical feedback for us, I think during this time, especially where we're trying some new things and you know, we want this to be um, engaging as well as informational. So give us your feedback on how you think things are going. If you have suggestions for new things or things you don't like, and um, apparently naming our segments and our overall podcast is a high priority as well. Um, so send any emails or feedback to pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. That's peds with the uh, U.S. spelling, not A-E. So just P-E-D-S. And then one thing from our mailbox uh, this month was from Sean Waldron, who's a uh, attending orthopedic surgeon, a Peds orthopedic surgeon at Oshner, which is a hospital in New Orleans. And, um, he says, I just finished listening to the November episode, and I really like the new format. I enjoyed listening to the discussion amongst the young surgeons after each interview. Keep up the good work. And we have essentially taken that as complete freedom to just <laughs> tell you whatever's on our mind. So uh, if you want us to tone it back a little bit, send us an email. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, guys. This was fun. Thank you to Dr. Dahl. Thank you to all the listeners. And I look forward to our conversation next month. Yeah, stay safe. Looking forward to it, guys. Good seeing you all tonight. Sweet. Good to see you guys. Am I on mute? No, I'm not. Oh, classic.